Well, I actually can say, and I think without any hyperbole, that I think the United States is on the brink of losing our democracy. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Margaret Sullivan, the veteran journalist who was, until August, the media columnist for The Washington Post. Before joining The Post, she was the public editor of The New York Times, and before that, she was the top editor of The Buffalo News. Sullivan is out with a new book in October called Newsroom Confidential, Lessons and Worries from an Ink-Stained Life. It chronicles her 42 years in the newspaper business. I called Margaret up this week to discuss her final column for The Washington Post, the drama plaguing newsrooms of major newspapers, and how the press should cover politics in the age of Trump. Margaret, thanks so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So your final column at The Washington Post focused on a topic that you covered very frequently there, which is how the media covers threats to democracy in the age of Trump. Why do you see that as such an important issue? Well, I actually can say, and I think without any hyperbole, that I think the United States is on the brink of losing our democracy. It's, it's under threat. Um, and that's because the sort of core, you know, tenet, which is free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power after elections is, is threatened. And we certainly saw that happen in 2020 and it hasn't gotten any better. So I think that the news media journalists need to rise to the occasion and realize that we're not in the 1960s or 70s or 80s or 90s. Uh, we're at a hinge point in American history, and they need to rethink their practices and rethink their all kinds of ways they go about their jobs and not just do it the same old way. And how do you think the press has, has done overall since Trump rose to power? Do you think we've gotten any better at covering those threats? I think the press has gotten better. I think at first it was like a circus, you know, it was just um, reaping the benefits of Trump as what he himself calls, a, he calls himself or has called himself a ratings machine. And there's some truth to that. I mean, it's one time when he's actually speaking the truth. Um, and so, you know, everybody was like, wow, this is amazing where our ratings are up, our, our viewership is up, our en reader engagement is up. But what journalists didn't do while they were enjoying the fruits of this was to think about what's best for American citizens and what's best for the public. So it was like treating it as this kind of entertainment and normalizing Trump and normalizing the people around Trump in a way that was not at all appropriate. And then, too, being very hesitant to move to some very obvious things like, for example, calling his lies lies. Um, you know, there was great hesitancy to do that because it was just nothing that had ever been applied to or very rarely applied to politicians in the past. But, you know, Trump is a different animal altogether. The press has often hesitated to use lie to describe the things that Trump says. I think in general, that's probably a, a useful prudence when it comes to other uh, describing other public figures and politicians. But it pretty much went out the window with Trump's election claims. Uh, yeah. Do you think, uh, I assume that your position is that that is 
justified when it comes to something like the election claims, which have been fact-checked a million times, tossed out by Trump-appointed judges, and that he still repeats. To what extent do you think it should be used for other things that he says or that other you know, politicians might say? I mean, I think it's wise to use the word lie judiciously, because mm. when you say someone is lying, you, you're, you almost have to be inside their heads. You have to know that they are aware. I mean, it's not just a misstatement or a flub or, a, you know, gaff or something like that. It's like an intentional misstatement. You and have to know the intent. Also. Right. So it goes to intent. But I think when somebody repeats the same falsehoods and misstatements over and over after it's been shown that they're false and pointed out that they're false and the person clearly knows that they're false, then I think we can use the word lie and it's appropriate. So I think that point arrived long before the election, you know, denial. I think it arrived, you know, early in his early in his campaign, actually, and then certainly throughout his administration. And absolutely, it should be applied to others if that same standard is met. I mean, this is the thing that I keep coming back to is we need to hold Democrats, Republicans, and everybody else to the same standards. So it's not about going after Republicans. It's not about going after Trump. It's about having some reasonable standards for the way elected officials or those who would be elected officials act and applying them across the board. But what's happened now is that Trump and his allies are the ones doing it. So then I don't think we should be shy about calling out lies. And I don't think we should be shy about saying it's the, it's the, you know, make America great again, Republicans who are perpetrating this stuff. So just to say, oh, you know, it's happening in politics or something is, is very fearful. And I think we need to be a little braver than that and tell the truth. That's the main thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of cable news anchors and, you know, actually even more broadcast anchors hesitate to say, actually, this is a unique problem of the Republican Party because there's a tendency to want to sort of both sides things. You wrote in in that last column that journalists have to be willing to show their readers that electing Trump again would be dangerous. And I think one of the, the hardest parts of covering Trump fairly is showing readers how he poses a threat without veering into outright opinion. Do you think that that's possible? I mean, it's certainly hard to do. Yeah, I think the hardest thing to do is to, it's really important, is to show these threats, which I think can be done just by sort of stating what's going on very clearly and by framing stories or broadcasts in an appropriate way. Um, And when I say framing, I'm talking about how we present things to the public. You know, we throw that word around framing. I don't think people necessarily know what it means. But with every headline, with every paragraph, with every spoken word, we're making choices. So let's make the choices that show things the way they are. So I think we can do that. And it's honestly not that hard to do if we're aware. I think the harder thing to do and very important is to not appear like we're um, partisan. We're not, it's not about being on the team of Trump's rivals, opponents, whatever, or, you know, it's not all about Trump. It's about people who are running for state office. It's about people who are running for other federal offices. You know, it's, 
Now, I'm not talking about opinion journalists here. I'm talking about news journalists. It, you know, it's totally inappropriate for them to be on somebody's side, but it's not inappropriate for them to tell the truth in such a clear way that news consumers, also known as citizens, um, can make these decisions for themselves, which is what people want to do. That's what they're, you know, I often hear people say, stop being so opinionated, just give me the facts. And I, I understand that impulse, and it's not wrong. And it's not a but, but rather an and. Um, every time we do a news story, every time we, you know, you go on the air, we're making kinds of choices. What story are we doing? How exactly are we telling it? What is the headline? What's the news alert? What's the tweet? What photograph are we using? What footage are we using? Every one of those things is a is a choice that is important. And I don't think it has to be partisan. I think it has to be truthful. And right now, telling the truth um, it is, is not only really important, but it it will lead a lot of people to the conclusion that Trump and his allies are dangerous. Yeah, you had a great example uh, in, in your piece on this where you noted that the New York Times and the AP had each had tweets about uh, Ron DeSantis making arrests for, for voting fraud. And the AP just said, you know, Ron DeSantis has made several arrests in his voting fraud investigation. And the New York Times put it into the context that these were 17 out of so many million people and that voting fraud is just not a serious problem in the United States. And right. I think and, that's- And I example. thought it was so impressive that, well, first of all, you know, it shouldn't be impressive. It should be just normal, but right. unfortunately it's kind of impressive. Um, but it's interesting to me that they were able to do that within the confines of a tweet. It wasn't like they had to, you know, write a treatise about it. It was, it was just adding a sentence to a tweet about these arrests. And, you know, I said in my column, it's not as if the Times gets it right all the time and the AP blows it all the time. You know, often it's the other way around and or any variation on a theme. But it was a good example of, you know, here's how to do it right. And here's how to do it in a way that doesn't get the job done. I'm not going to both sides here because there's a massive difference in scale, but some Democrats, including Karine Jean-Pierre, the current press secretary for Joe Biden, face criticism for their previous claims that elections were stolen from Democrats. Karine Jean-Pierre said in 2016 that Trump had stolen the election from Hillary Clinton. Do you think those claims should be called out as well? Is there a way to sort of put into context the difference in scale? You know, should Democrats be called out as well for, for claims like that? Yes, they, they should be, because I believe in holding everybody to the same standard. Um, and it's important to put it, as you just said, in context so that we understand that, you know, one thing is a relative rarity and here's the context in which it happened. And one thing is a campaign to take down our democracy. <laughs> you know, it's kind of different. <laughs> and, and, and but yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to to. Um, call out, call out this kind of behavior whenever it happens. You know, I, I tweeted recently about um, the death, uh, the murder, I, I, I think we can say, of the Las Vegas um, Journal Review reporter at the hands of, you know, apparently, I mean, I, I don't want to 
it seems the guy's been charged, uh, a public official. And when I tweeted about it, I didn't say, and this public official was a Democrat. And I, you know, people came at me from all over saying, when he was a Democrat, you they never say will. when he's a Democrat. Right. And I, I mean, I, I sort of examined my conscience on this and said, well, would I have actually pointed out the person's party if it was a Republican? And I don't know that I would have in a tweet, you know, but, Mm. but it's, you know, it's a good, it's, it's good to be aware. I think it's important too not to overreact to that and try to, you know, take things down the middle when the middle is not actually a, a valid place to be because there's such a difference between the, between the two. Right. We're dealing with an asymmetry here. Exactly. Uh, now, the midterm elections are coming up. You argued recently that you don't think Americans quite understand what the stakes are for democracy in these coming elections, giving this anti, anti-democratic strain in the Republican Party, and that the media needs to find new ways to, to hammer that home. Do you th- ever think that that's a fool's errand? And I'm not saying that the media should avoid trying it, but given so much of the country has just completely tuned out the media, it... it is it, is it a fool's errand to try and convince so many Americans that that this is truly a threat? Well, if that's the case, then I guess journalism is a fool's errand too, and I don't think it is. I mean, I think we have to do our jobs, and we have to do them as in as smart and appropriate to the time way that we can. And if it fails, it fails, you know. But we have to give it our best effort. And so I am concerned that a lot of, I mean, a lot of my friends who are non-journalists have tuned out the news, have just said, like, I don't, I don't want to know, you know, there's an element of, I, I just, I'm, I'm beaten down. And I think COVID was a big part of this too. You know, we all felt like, wow, there was so much going on, on the national politics front. And then COVID came along and it was just this barrage of bad news. And then, you know, of course you have things like hurricanes and terrible deaths resulting from that. And at some point people are like, you know what? I, I just want a break from it. Um, and that's understandable. It's understandable, you know, and, and I also think that people have an obligation to know what's going on. And so, and I think in general, they do know what's going on and they, and they do want good information and they will seek out good information. Um, you know, not everyone, because there is a swath of the country that who've been, you know, the, the sort of regular Fox viewers who have to some extent, or maybe a large extent tuned out reality and really, you know, want to hear a different version of it that will get them outraged not a different version of reality. I'm not talking about alternative facts here, but a uh, you know a, a false version, and um, and and those you know that may be a lost cause. But there are a lot of people, and not just Democrats. There are people who are on the fence. There are people who are independent. There are Republicans who are seeking good information, and it's our job to get it to them in as you know in a way that is engaging and interesting and, you know, clear, um, and explains ourselves as much as we can. I mean, I think that's really important, some transparency about how we do our job and why we're doing it this way right now. Um, all that stuff, I think cumulatively, uh, make, can make a difference. Now looking ahead, 
the, the midterms end, let's say Trump declares his candidacy for 2024. How do you think the press should treat him? Well, uh, more sensibly than it did last time around, you know, in, in 2016. So to, you know, and, and I always have to, I have to pause and say this, that I, I hear people say, why didn't the press tell us who Trump was? Well, that is untrue. The, there was plenty of information out there in 2015 and 2016 about who Trump was. In fact, the Washington Post wrote a book, it's a reporters, and it was published by or through the Post called Trump Revealed. And it told you an awful lot about Trump and how what an inappropriate, to say the least, candidate he would be. And lots of other news organizations did similar kinds of things. So it wasn't like, oh, we just thought he would be the absolute best statesman and the, you know, all of that. No, people definitely could find out who he was. But I think to stop normalizing him, to stop acting like any minute now he's going to become presidential or this stuff is really kind of okay or here's what the Democrats said today and here's what Trump said today and let's like treat them equally. I, I think the time for that is, if it ever was appropriate, is way past. You had a piece recently on the 50th anniversary of Watergate where you argued that a scandal like that, which captured national attention and forced a president out of office, would not happen today. And you blame that in part on the right-wing media ecosystem and how it enabled Republicans to really turn a blind eye to Trump's scandals. Walk us through that argument that what happened during Watergate just would not happen today. So, you know, Watergate is a very important uh thing in my past. And I, I, I have a book coming out next. Well, actually I can now say this month in October yeah. called newsroom confidential in which it's a memoir. And I, I started off by, by writing about how I was very young, but sentient. Um, and, uh, and the Watergate hearings were happening and they really, they were a big part of what drew me into Watergate, into, into journalism. So I've paid a lot of attention to it over the years and I, you know, I just think that now it's 50 years later and, you know, so much has changed. Our, the trust in institutions has changed so dramatically right after Watergate and the Pentagon Papers. So like in the mid seventies, the trust in the news media was up in the like mid 70th percent, mid, you know, like 75 or 76% of people had some, at least some or a lot of trust in the news media, you know, that is, you know, has dropped precipitously. So I think the fact that, that institutions, including the press are far less trusted and that, and that, you know, public officials, including Republicans are, will not act the way, um, Howard Baker and even Barry Goldwater and many others did in saying, no, this is unacceptable and we will not countenance it, that we see now that, that well, I mean, Liz Cheney is doing that. Uh, but, you know, m most Republican, many, many Republicans are not. So I think the whole landscape has changed very dramatically. And I know, I don't think that, I mean, I actually think what's happened with Trump uh, is in many ways, you know, in, in different realms, uh, is, is worse than what happened with Watergate and 
it's not going to apparently stop him from running again, and it may not keep him from winning again. Yeah, Liz Cheney notably not going to be serving in Congress anymore. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you've, you've written a considerable amount about Fox News, which I think it's safe to say you see as a uniquely malignant force in media. What do you say to people on the right who argue that Fox is no different from other opinion cable news networks like CNN or MSNBC? Well, that's wrong. Um, I say you're wrong because um, while it is true that people go to cable news to get their outrage on, and that's somewhat true across the board, um, Fox is different in that it so often is unhinged from reality. And if you and if you're looking at somebody like Tucker Carlson's show, I mean, this is someone who basically has signed on to anti-democratic and even fascistic beliefs. And, you know, this is a very destructive force. He's got a big audience. He's really influential. He's also out of control. I mean, it doesn't seem like the brass at Fox or the Murdochs have any interest in, you know, reining him in. And, you know, that's true to a lesser extent with other others of the primetime stars. So, no, I don't I don't think these are equal. There, there are different politics, different political points of view on CNN and on MSNBC. But I don't think they're you can't really compare them to Fox because they're nowhere near as as extreme in their direction or as unhinged from the truth as Fox is on the right. Do you think there's any chance that Fox moderates itself over the next couple of years? Are you worried that it's just going to keep getting more extreme? I mean, I think the only reason that it will modify itself is because of the lawsuits um, that, you know, Dominion voting systems, if I have that right, and Smartmatic have brought um, about the mistruths and the lies and the falsehoods that were that were broadcast. And I think when that could be very, very expensive. Um, I, I don't think that an advertising boycott will get the job done. I don't, I don't see anything other than, you know, some sort of bizarre change of heart by Lachlan and, and Rupert Murdoch, which there's no reason to think that would ever happen. Uh, will change this, you know, whatever their actual beliefs are, they see, this as a money-making, very highly successful money-making operation, and I don't think they're likely to change it. But I think they, there could be some um, moderation and some change that could come about if these lawsuits are successful. Right. With profits north of $1 billion a year, it's it's hard to imagine that they change course. Now, uh, do you have any thoughts on the new direction that CNN is taking under its new boss, Chris Licht? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly watching that carefully. And I know that if I were still at the Washington Post, um, which, by the way, I left completely voluntarily and on good terms with everybody. I just was ready to do something else. I was going to, that was one of my questions. Yeah, no, what, no, no. What, that, that, what's the reason for I, your departure? I can was. come back to that if you want to. Okay. But, you know, I just felt like after six years, uh, two media columns a week was, uh, I'd kind of had it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm watching that carefully at CNN. Um, I don't know if it seems as though Chris Licht is looking to appeal to some vast middle. And I don't know that a vast middle actually exists, you know? Um, I, I just don't know. I was sorry to see Brian Stelter, 
you know, lose his show. I thought that overall that it was a way to keep media honest. Um, you know, John Harwood, I, I was a fan of his. So some of his moves haven't pleased me too much. He also went on this kind of what's been called an apology tour to uh, try to get Republican leaders to tell their people to come on CNN if they were if they were hesitant to, you know, there's things like that that I think don't really rub me the right way. But, um, you know, let's see what happens. I, I, I think the it's very early and who knows? I mean, maybe maybe there's a vast middle that will emerge and that will that wants to be informed accurately. And, you know, I'm not saying what's happening is in some sort of unmitigated disaster. Now, going back to your idea that Watergate, that the, the media is too fractured to be able to cover that in, a, in the way that they did. Another reason that scandal, I think, would have a tough time resonating today is that you have had a massive erosion in local news. And, you know, before the Times and the Post, you were the top editor of the Buffalo News, where I, I think you started there as a summer intern. I did. Um, <laughs> we're working your way up to top editor. You wrote a book about this as well, about the the local news being in a tough spot called Ghosting the News. What does the local news landscape look like right now? Well, so it's not all bad. Um, newspapers, local newspapers, for the most part, are suffering and have cut their staff so deeply that it's mm. shocking. Um, I mean, I like to get just so just to give one illustration of that. Um, I like to look at Denver, which, it, you know, not too long ago had two robust newspapers and robust newsrooms, each with 300 people in them, the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post. So the Rocky Mountain News has gone out of business. The Denver Post is owned by Alden Global, which is a hedge fund, basically. And, you know, they're nowhere near. I, I'm sure their staff is under 100, uh, probably way under 100. So you went from 600 people in these two newsrooms to, you know, a, a relative handful of people who are still, by the way, doing a great job. Um, so that's happened across the country. And there are two newspapers every week that are going out of business, a lot of weeklies in small towns. So um, that's all horrible. Uh, the Buffalo News, which for the longest time had a 200 person newsroom is well under a hundred now. It hasn't suffered as badly as some, but it's way down. And you know, the paper is thinner than it used to be. It's it's less well-staffed. It's It still does a very good job on a lot of things, but it's not it's not what it was. You, you, there's no way to get around it. Um, a lot of good things have happened. There have been a bunch of um, all over the country, nonprofit newsrooms or digital first newsrooms have, have cropped up. You know, VT Digger in Vermont and MinPost and the Texas Tribune and on and on. Uh, in fact, one in Buffalo called Investigative Post. So these are really, that's a very positive thing. And they're mostly funded through philanthropy or events, you know, not so much through advertising in the old way. The, the bad thing there is that those are mostly in metro areas, big metro areas. And it's the smaller towns and the rural areas that are really suffering. So it's not as if it's a completely bleak landscape, but it's 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 pretty grim. And at the same time, I'm amazed all the time at the good work that local journalists are able to do, including with covering 
Ian in Florida. You know, it, it really is so impressive the way these journalists who are overworked um, and probably underpaid uh, can rise to the occasion and really do some important work and including investigative work, extremely important investigative work. You're out with a new book this month, as you noted. Uh, it's called Newsroom Confidential Lessons and Worries from an Ink-Stained Life. Tell us about the book, what you tried to achieve in writing it, which, as I understand, is, is, is part memoir of your uh, your career. Right. It, it is a memoir. And uh, it, it was funny because uh, during the time that I was just starting to you know, send it off to my publisher, I saw a tweet from uh, the Pulitzer-winning book critic Carlos Lozada, who at the time was at the Washington Post. And Carlos is very clever. and uh, He said, if I see one more book described as a memoir slash manifesto, I'm going to scream. And I thought, well, you are going to see one more because uh, because it's mine. So it it is a memoir and it looks back as far as Watergate uh, on my journalistic life. and I, you know, became the editor of my high school paper and kind of never looked back. Um, but it also looks at the issues we've been talking about on this podcast, Aiden, the, um, the objectivity, um, truth-telling, framing, uh, both sides in things, and tries to make some recommendations and to look at best practices and worst practices. So it's a, it's a fairly impassioned um, look at something that I feel so strongly about because I've spent my whole life in it is, is, is journalism, which can do, do so much good and needs to be at its best, especially right now. Now, the Washington Post has had some drama this year, and, you know, honestly, so has the New York Times. At the Post, there was the Felicia Somnes, Dave Weigel blow up. There were a couple Taylor Lorenz incidents, a lot of drama on Twitter. This really put the editor, Sally Busby, in a tough spot. A lot of this stuff seems to stem from clashes, which are present in all big newsrooms between the younger staff and, and older management with how to use social media and how to report on big, hot issues. What do you make of those conflicts in newsrooms? What did you think of them when you were at The Post and when you were public editor at The New York Times? You know, it's weird, I guess, in a way, because I'm uh, my you know, my age and experience would suggest that I would be in sympathy with the old school folks. But I find that for the most part, I'm, I'm more in sympathy with, um, you know, the so-called woke journalists who are trying to change things. And, you know, clearly, sometimes people go too far on Twitter, or make those kinds of mistakes. But, um, I think there's a democratizing thing that's going on in newsrooms in which people who haven't had very much power um, are finding their voices and finding their power. And sometimes it has to do with underrepresentation for, for, for women, for people of color. And, um, you know, without going through chapter and verse on these individual things, which I really don't want to do here, um, although I certainly have opinions about all of them, uh, some of which are in my book. Um, I, I think that, you know, newsrooms are changing and we can see that happening and it's not always very comfortable and it's not always very pretty. So it's disruptive and it can also be positive. Your column at The Post was modeled after David Carr's at The Times, right? Yeah, well, it, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. But what I found was that as soon as I came to the post, 
I went to the two political conventions in 2016. And it was kind of like the subject matter changed so much because David Carr's wonderful column, greatly missed to this day as, as he is, a lot of that was about the digital transformation of journalism because that's kind of what the subject was. So I that's pass. kind of what I expected to be writing about. But that isn't what I ended up writing about. And what I found out at the Post was that if you're not writing about national politics, you're missing the boat. I mean, it's sort of like there's only one subject. And right. when I figured that out, I write about this in my in my book about coming to the Post and you know, being a little bit um, off kilter, I, I didn't really understand what my brief needed to be. <laughs> and then I wrote a column pretty early on about CNN hiring Corey Lewandowski, who was the bullying uh, former campaign manager for the Trump campaign. And I took off uh, on CNN about that. And I felt like I sort of found my footing there because it was strongly worded. It had a strong opinion. It was about national politics. It was right. And um, it found a big, it found an audience. And I remember Jay Rosen from NYU, who's a friend, um, tweeting something like, this is the kind of work I expected Margaret Sullivan to do when she went to the Post. And it was sort of implicit in that tweet that, and I haven't seen it until now. So it, could, it took me a little while to get there. So yes, it was modeled after David's reporting and his, you know, I mean, I, I don't for one second think that I'm as talented um, or as good at it as he was. But you know, I, I modeled it after his effort to tell the truth about important things and to bring some reporting into that and to be brave and to write well. So I hope to that extent I did I did that kind of stuff. I was trying to think if there is anyone in light of your, your departure from the Post who is doing the kind of, you know, reported opinion on the media that David Carr did so well. Do you have any idea who the Post might name as your successor? And is there anyone that you think could handle the job well? I'm not sure. I don't know that the Post will name a media columnist at all. Um, so that's my take on that. Does that I, I just you? think that there might be a feeling that the, the resources are better spent on reporting. You know, the column was on the, the you know, sort of, it's sort of hard to explain in some ways, but there's an opinion side of the post. And right. on the opinion side is Eric Wemple. And Eric does a great job, I think, and does right. a lot of reporting. <laughs> and then there's the news side. Um, and I was on the news side with people like Sarah Ellison, Paul Farhi, uh, Elahe Izadi, and, and Jeremy Barr. And, you know, but I was writing opinion. So I think that the feeling may be, let's leave opinion to the opinion side I mean, this is my hunch. And let's maybe hire another media reporter to do more straight up news reporting. I do think that the New York Times will replace Ben Smith as media columnist. Um, and I, you know, I don't know who that's going to be that, you know, I've heard that Katie Rosman, um, who's a reporter at the, you know, in styles, as opposed to style at the Washington Post, but styles at the uh, New York Times, or maybe she's in the business section now. I'm not sure. Anyway, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for her work. She'd do a great job. I know they were considering some outside candidates, so I think they will replace Ben. Um, 
And, you know, I could be wrong about the Post. It's just my gut feeling. The Post, uh, according to the New York Times, is on track to lose money in, in 2022 for the first time in years. And that means that layoffs could be on the horizon. Are you f- worried about the future of the Washington Post right now? Or are you optimistic? Uh, well, first of all, I'm not sure. I, I do think there may be some cutbacks in the number of newsroom jobs, mm-hmm. but I don't know that that's going to mean layoffs. It could right. just mean letting some positions go unfilled. So I don't think it's as dramatic as maybe some people, I don't, I'm not dissing the times here. Their reporting was fine, but I think people immediately assume, oh, that means a bunch of people are going to get laid off. I, I would be surprised to see that. Um, there are always in a newsroom the size of the posts, which is over a thousand people, there are always a whole bunch of unfilled positions and you can leave them unfilled and save a hundred jobs. You know, um, I think the post is a great news organization. I know that it's needed. I'm, I'm in awe of what a lot of the reporting is there and the, not just the reporting, but the, you know, some of the multimedia work. Um, I think, you know, it may have some, it may have a rough year or two, and I think it'll be fine in the end. Uh, Margaret Sullivan, the book is Newsroom Confidential, Lessons and Worries from an Ink-Stained Life. It's out October 18th. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and check out coverage of my conversation with Margaret Sullivan on Mediaite.com.